Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning. You know, uh, running on empty. Don't you love those old hymns? Isn't that great? Really, that's not a bad condition, actually, spiritually speaking, because when you're empty, you give God an opportunity to fill an area of your life that was filled with something else. One of the biggest problems I think most people have when you follow Christ for a period of time is you get a little full of yourself. You know, Pride is one of the biggest things that hits someone once they have followed after Christ. You can get kind of full of pride, right? And so you have to empty yourself of yourself because one of the things that even God cannot do is fill what's already full. So that's not really a bad thing, and really it sets up the very first installment in this new series, which we're really going to try to look at the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is really the first message, the first sermon that Jesus ever preached. Now, what was interesting about it is it was a very positive message. Now, understand, most people, when they had heard a preacher or they had heard a teacher teach, it was typically a rabbi, and the rabbis would typically uh, talk about the law, and basically, the end result of the teaching of the law was to bring people to a point of feeling guilty and feeling bad. And, and you know, the, the law was never meant as a standard by which we all could live up to it. In fact, the law, the Bible says, was given as a school teacher to bring us to a realization that we can't be perfect and we need a savior. But the rabbis would teach us, though, if you're going to go into heaven, you've got to keep all the elements of the law, even though they weren't. And so the point is, you, your walk away from hearing the messages, typically you would feel worse than when you came to hear the sermon. Now, let me say this. I've been in church a long time. My dad was a pastor. And there are a lot of guys in my profession who really think that if you leave church feeling better than when you came, they did something wrong. <laughs> that their job is just to set you in a pew and just kind of beat the sin out of you. And, and, you know, and what's scary about that is some people are kind of into that. They scare me a little bit. Like they walk out of church, you know, they're kind of limping, going, thank you, pastor, I needed that. I can't wait to come back and you beat the sin out of me next week, right? Well, look, the Bible says you are more than conquerors in Christ. It's not my job to put you under anything. It's my job to help you get over stuff. You talk to people and say, man, how are you doing? Well, under the circumstances, I want to say, well, what are you doing under there? I mean, God wants you to get up and over the things that have got you down and under. Now look, I know, I know, for some people, the only way they can empty themselves of themselves is to come to the end of themselves. And sometimes God will sovereignly put us in a place where we get shaken a little bit and where we get uh, broken a little bit to get us to a place where we trust him. Because as I told you before, we're all full of something. Everybody's full of something. And you really don't know what you're full of till somebody squeezes you, bumps you, or shakes you. And all of a sudden, what's in you comes out of you. Remember Matthew or Mark 7, where he says it's not what's in a person that defiles them as much as it what comes out of the person? You know, when somebody cuts you off on the road, you say something that's not real sanctified? <laughs> the question I always ask is, did they put that in your heart, or did they draw that out of your heart? The reality is, it's already down there. I mean, I've told you before, if you could dog cuss somebody before you know Jesus, you can still dog cuss them just as good now. You know all that, it's still down there. The point is you don't know what you're full of until you go through stuff and you get emptied of that and then God can then fill the things that we empty ourselves of. So another way of thinking about it, 
No one really ever comes to faith until they know they need to. I mean, you don't. And you, and you, really, you really can't determine uh, where you need to be if you don't know where you are. So one of the things that has to happen is you have to have a, a good understanding of where you are. Where, where am I in my life? Where am I in my faith? I mean, if you're going to lose weight, you have to have a scale. You have to know kind of where you are. If you're going to work out, you need a trainer. You need some way of measuring how you're doing. I mean, that's just a standard of life. If you're going to manage money, you kind of got to know where, where you are on that. If you're in a mall and you're trying to find a store and you go to the map, you look for the red dot. And the red dot says what? You are here. Because you can't get there if you don't know where you're here, right? You got to know where you are. So the point is, most people don't really know how to access all the blessings that were in the sermon Jesus taught on the Beatitudes. So we're going to try to show you a way whereby the Beatitudes can become a reality in your life. In fact, the Beatitudes don't just promise heaven one day. I mean, the sermon of Jesus didn't just promise heaven one day. It does, but that wasn't the only thing. It also promised heaven on earth. I mean, one day we're going to go to heaven, one day we'll experience that, but did you know it's possible to have a little heaven here on earth? That's what the Beatitudes were all about. He's talking about kingdom principles. He's saying, look, there is a way you can, you can be a part of the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, let me, let me explain the kingdom of God, that phrase, because that's a little Christianese to some people. And they're like, what does that mean? Well, kingdom is just, you break the word apart, it's the king's domain. The kingdom is the king's domain. So when you think about God's kingdom on earth, you're just thinking about the realm of God's control. You're tracking with me just the areas that he controls. In other words, when I'm in that realm, when I'm in his domain, and I'm under his control, that means I experience his presence, that means I experience his power, that means I have access to his provision, that means I can know his peace because I'm in his domain. And so the Beatitudes, he's talking about the fact that his kingdom can be experienced here on earth. And then each Beatitude really shows you how to access God's very best for your life here on this earth. That's why we call this the series The Good Life. It is how do I, how do I experience all of the promises of God when he preached this message, the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about the Beatitudes. By the way, can, can I kind of go back where I started? It was one of the most uplifting messages that those people had ever heard. Remember, they had been pretty much berated over the message of the rabbi. They'd been made to feel so guilty about that. And Jesus comes on the scene and goes, hey, here's a way to be blessed. The word blessed just means happy. Here's a way to have joy in your life. I'm not putting down on you. I want you to have the best life. I want you to experience the best that I have for you. And there's a way you can access it, and it has to deal with being a part of his kingdom. So he was talking kind of to two groups. Every weekend I talk, I talk to two groups. There was one group that was, who were there who were followers of Christ. They bought in. They believed what he was talking about. They were true followers of Christ. So for them, he was helping them understand, this is what you currently have. This is the possession you have to possess. Now that's important because some people don't know they have possessions to possess. Maya Angelou used to say people will do better when they know better. Well, sometimes people know better and still don't do better because they don't apply the things that they know. That's why he said in James, if you know to do good, but you don't do it, then it actually can work against you. So just knowing something without applying something won't affect your life. So he's trying to challenge one group of people to the fact you have a possession to possess. 
Reminds me of that little silly story, the guy on the cruise, and he brought crackers and cheese and candy bars in his suitcase. And when everybody else would go to the buffet, he was in the cabin eating crackers and cheese and candy bars. And somebody says, man, why don't you join us for dinner? What's up? He goes, oh, I didn't have enough, I didn't bring enough money to be able to do that. No, the cost of the food was in the price of your ticket. It's all paid for. And I heard that little silly story, and I thought, that's a lot of people I know who follow Christ. They don't realize they have a possession that they're not possessing. They have an access they're not making themselves available to. You can talk to the creator of the universe any moment, any time of any day. And so one of the people, one of the groups of people he's talking to are people who bought in, who are following and saying the Beatitudes are a reality. You can experience my kingdom here on earth. The second group he's referring to are people who have not yet trusted him. They're kind of kicking the tires and they're thinking about it, but they haven't yet placed their faith in Christ. And the message to them is this could be yours. This, uh, this be, uh, this, the reality of this message could be something you could walk away with, and it's simply placing your faith and trust in Christ. So those are the two groups that are included in this Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, take it up with me in Matthew 5, and we'll just hit that first one and we'll go home. Matthew 5, 1, seeing the multitudes, he goes up to a mountain, and when he's seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, here's the first one, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I didn't say poor, he said poor in spirit. Now, to help you understand that expression, you could substitute this word humble. Same idea. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is, note present tense, not will be, theirs is what? The kingdom, the king's domain of heaven. In other words, the first beatitude opens the idea of experiencing all God has for you and the way you experience all he has for you is this idea of humility, humility. It's the key to unlocking a lot of God's blessing in the king's domain. And the reason that's so important is because it's very easy, as I said earlier, once you've placed your faith in Christ, to become kind of full of yourself a little bit and kind of look down at other people a little bit and feel like, you know, well, I've got my, you know, my fire insurance policy in my pocket. I'm not going to hell. You know, I'm going to heaven and, and I'm good to go. And, and you can get a little self-satisfied and a little full of pride. And it's one of those things that can creep into anyone's life. And so the very first thing Jesus talks about is the value, significance, and the importance of humility. In fact, the Bible says in James, God resists the proud, but he gives a lot of grace to the humble. The word resist is he fights against. I've told you before, it's sad to see a humble savior and a proud sinner. And so this whole idea of humility is the very first thing Jesus talks about on experiencing all the things God has for us to experience. Well, how does humility come about? How does that happen? Well, the first thing it has to do is the perspective. First of all, you got to look up. I said earlier, you need a standard by which you measure things, scales or, or you know, a calculator. or you, know, you, you have to have a standard. And so if I want to see where I am in my spiritual life, I need a standard to measure that against. Well, the best standard to measure where you are is to look in God's word and to, and to look up, to look at God. He's perfection. He's what we want to attain. That, that's what we want to be. We, we want to be good and perfect in every way. So if I want to see how I'm doing in my uh, quest to be a better person, then I, I need to see him, <laughs> and it's humbling when I see that. Uh, the, the flip side of it is if you don't measure yourself by that standard, then you measure yourself by each other. 
Remember Paul said, don't compare yourselves among yourselves because that's not wise. That's the tendency we do. Like you say, well, I'm gonna kind of see how I'm doing. Well, next to this guy, I'm doing pretty good. He's pretty, you know, compared to her, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm really good. But that's not the standard. When we're really seeing how we are spiritually and we're wanting to measure that, you have to look up. Let me give you this illustration. When you read Isaiah, if you took the first six chapters of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and you read his, his writings, what you'll find in the first five chapters is a, a prophet who is just being hard on the people he's speaking to. Much like the rabbis of that day who raked people over the coals because they weren't keeping the standards and the tenets of the law. And you see this in this expression in Isaiah 1 through 5. You hear him say this, woe is unto you. Woe is unto you. You hear that expression. And you can almost visualize that long bony finger of the prophet pointed at the faces of the people he's speaking to going, woe is unto you. Woe. Well, that ex here's what that expression meant. That expression meant if you don't change the way you're living your life, woe is unto you means trouble is coming your way. You're going to hit a hard spot in life. Now, Jesus even picked that up in Matthew when he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Remember, he said, woe unto you, high scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside, but the inside's full of dead men's bones. So he used that same expression, but he used it in a different context. He was talking to this religious crowd that was full of pride. Isaiah's just going after everybody. <laughs> and not only is he pointing at them saying, woe is unto you, but he's picking on them. He's showing them the things that they're doing that are wrong as though they didn't know. And so, man, he is just this negative prophet pointing out all of these things in people's life. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, until something happens. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He looked up. Now, what's the significance of the context? Uzziah, many scholars believe, was a cousin uh, to Isaiah, the prophet. And undoubtedly, Isaiah the prophet looked up to Uzziah, probably saw him as a mentor, a role model, a father figure perhaps, someone he greatly admired. Uzziah has leprosy. Now, we all know how terrible that is. We have ways now through our advances in medical science to mitigate and even cure and treat leprosy. They didn't have that then. If you had leprosy, um, by law, you had to warn people to stay away. They would use an expression like this, I'm unclean. I'm undone. So if someone was approaching you because that disease was so um, highly contagious, very communicable, you'd have to say, by law, you'd have to say, undone, I'm clean, stay back, stay away. I can make you sick, stay away. And so people would avoid people with leprosy. And here the king is, he has leprosy. And so the Bible says that he actually dies from his leprosy and Isaiah is devastated. And what's interesting when I read that as I'm thinking in context of this message is what took this prideful prophet and what made him a humble servant was a broken heart. I mean, all of a sudden, man, he's losing someone. His heart, his soul is crushed through the grief he's experienced. And listen to what happened. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Then he describes the vision. He said, I saw the train, the, 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 the length of his robe, the train, it filled the temple. He said, above him were seraphims, were angels as they were flying. They had six wings and with two of the wings they covered their face because they couldn't look on the holiness of God. With two they covered their feet, signifying humility, and with two they flew. 
And the angels, as they're flying around the throne of God, they're saying, holy, 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 the thrice holy God, uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the Bible says that the posts of the door moved at the voice that them that cried out. And the Bible says the whole uh, house was filled with smoke. He saw this vision of God. He saw God as he is. Now listen to the very next verse, and I'm going to give it to you. He says this, then said I, woe is me. (laughs) Where'd that woe is you stuff go? Five chapters, man, been woe is you. But all of a sudden, listen, he looked up, and here's what happened to him. It's my second point. It caused him to look in. When he saw God as he is, he saw himself as he was, and he went, wow, I've been putting down on other people. I've been dogging other people. I've been hard on other people. Maybe I need to work on me. (laughs) I mean, there's an old hymn that says, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. (laughs) And so many times as a diversionary tactic, we'll project on other people when the reality of it is, if we just worked on us. I've always had a great admiration for people who feel qualified to straighten other people out. I've never found myself in a position to feel like I can do that. Here's the reality of my life. I have a full-time job keeping me straightened out. And to assume that I'm fixed now and I can go work on you, that's a pretty big assumption, wouldn't you think? (laughs) I'm just saying, man, if I can just keep me walking the line, if I can keep me on the straight and narrow, that's a full-time job. And what happens sometimes is, man, you get, like I said, you get a little conceited, a little full of pride. You feel like you're a little farther along than you are. And sometimes it takes a devastating experience to bring us to the reality that we see God as he is. We see ourselves as we are. We empty ourselves of ourselves, which is humility. And he saw himself. Let me give you another illustration. When you go to Luke 18, Jesus is tell, this is a story Jesus told. It's a parable. By the way, a parable is a heavenly story with an earthly application. Uh, Think the word parable comes from the word parallel. Think about train tracks, parallel. It's one truth alongside of the other. So he's talking one thing and he's applying it to this. And so he's telling a parable. And here's the parable, Luke 18, pick it up about verse 9. He says, there were two men that went to the temple to pray. All right, two men, knowledge, God, realized they needed to pray. So these two men go to the temple to pray. Then he describes them. One is a Pharisee. Full of pride, trying to keep the law. The other is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors back in that day, I'll give you a brief rundown. I've shared this before, but for those of you that missed it, a tax collector was someone the Roman government hired to collect taxes from the Jewish people, usually a Jewish person. The Jewish people resented them because they felt like, you know, they're betraying their own people collecting taxes. The Romans resented them because they knew they were crooked. And what they would do if you had a tax problem, they may come to you and say, look, you pay me something under the table, I'll reduce the bill, fudge the paperwork, I'll turn it into Rome, we're good to go. So you paid them under the table, so your tax bill uh, was reduced, and Rome knew they were doing it, but the Roman government thought, you know, a little bit of something's better than all of nothing, so we'll take it and go. So they just looked the other way. The Jewish people hated them, resented them. This is a tax collector. So this tax collector obviously knows He's in a profession that's taking advantage of people and harming people, and he feels guilty about it, so he's in the temple. Do you get the contrast? One man, the Pharisee, full of pride. The other man, a tax collector, full of guilt. And Jesus describes it this way. He says the Pharisee goes first to pray. And here's the the way he describes it. I love the way the King James styles it. He said he prayed within himself, meaning that that prayer wasn't getting past the ceiling fan if they had them back then. 
He prayed within himself. You hear the wording? Remember I said God resists the pride. So this man was full of himself, so God was like, talk to the hands, sport, loosely translated. But he prayed within himself. And this was a prayer that he prayed. Get this. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not as all these other people are. Now he's praying out loud. Can you imagine being in the audience in the temple that day when that joker got up and prayed that prayer? <laughs> I mean, you're sitting out there, and he loudly says, God, I just want to thank you that I'm not like all these people. Good Lord. Right? And then he didn't just go there. He starts busting them on things they had done. This one's done that sin, and this one's done that sin, and this one's done the other sin. These, I'm, in a, I'm in a house full of sinners. I'm just glad, I'm glad I'm not one of them. You see what pride does? Now, all of a sudden, he feels like he can pontificate, look down upon other people for their struggles when he had the biggest problem, which was pride. Did you know pride is the original sin? If you want to know the sin that caused Lucifer to lose heaven and go to the earth and he became the, the, you know, the, he, he became the, the father of darkness uh, instead of an angel of light, was pride. Read Isaiah 14. Seven or eight times, Lucifer says, I will ascend above the heavens. I will be like the most high God. I will make my throne higher than the throne of God. I will, I will. Pride. Pride was the original sin. It's the most, God resists the proud. And here this man, thank God I'm not as other people are, and he names them all, all this stuff, and he goes on with his prayer. And then Jesus contrasts it with the prayer of this tax collector. And the Bible says it this way. He said, this poor man would not as much as lift his eyes to heaven. He was so overwhelmed. He knew he was so unworthy. He knew the things that he'd done. He knew it brought all these problems on himself. He would not even as much, the Bible says, as lift his eyes to heaven. And here was his prayer. Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. That's humility. And you know how Jesus described it? He said that man, the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other. Jesus said, I heard and forgave that man. And that guy, other dude's on his own. Remember in Mark 2 at the going away party of the tax collector? Pharisees are standing outside judging the people inside. Jesus sitting at the table with them, eating and drinking and fellowshipping with them. Jesus perceives their hearts that they're criticizing and judging and pontificating those people around the table who needed him. And he goes out and confronts them and he says, look, I didn't come to call self-righteous people to repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. And I'm telling you, pride is a terrible thing. Pride will keep you from enjoying the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's why it's the first thing. He says, man, resist the pride. Be humble. Jesus is the door. To get through the door, you have to stoop. It requires some humility. One of the lines of the old hymn was, In my hand no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You just come before God like, like, like the, 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 the crusades that Billy Graham used to do. They all ended with just as I am, just as I am without one plea. But that's your blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. That's it. You say, Lord, I messed up. I have made mistakes. You know it better than I. And I'm just submitting to you. I'm humbly approaching you. I'm emptying me of me so that you can fill me with your presence. That's the kingdom of heaven on earth. And here's what it does, and we're done with this. When you look up and you look in, it changes how you look around. It changes how you see people. You see, you don't see people as they are as much as you see them as you are. We all look through the prism of our life experiences. We look through the prism of where we are right now. 
If I'm angry, then I'm going to see you differently. If I'm depressed, I'm going to see you differently. If I'm in a bad place, it's going to affect us. So if I can get healthy, if I can get my heart health, healthy, if I can get my spirit and attitude healthy, it impacts every relationship I have. When I see him as he is and I see myself as I am, it changes the way I see you. Let me give you some really good characteristics of true humility and how we treat other people. Let me share this with you real quick. First of all, you seek the best in other people. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about seeking the best. In other words, I, I, I see you and I'm interested in what is best for you. You ever have something great happen in your life and you have trouble finding someone to share it with because you don't know if they're going to be happy for you? <laughs> Is it just me? The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Have you found there's not many people that always, like you get a new car and you go, I go to you and they look at you like, well, I'm glad somebody has a new car. You ever had that? Have you seen my new house? Well, I'm glad somebody got a new house. I want to say, dude, there's other houses out there. Go get you one. They didn't get the last car. There's more cars. You can find you a car. I mean, it's just what happens when you're genuinely humble is you want people to be blessed. You look at them, you man, I want you to be, I want you to get over this. Help me. How can I help you? How can I help you get through this? God has things, great things for you. And so one of the characteristics of true humility is you seek the best in other people. Another characteristic is you're not arrogant. You're not aggressive or demanding on people. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. You ever know someone, and like maybe you knew him in high school, and you meet him later and you're like, oh my gosh, that guy used to be so humble and now he's just the jerk. And you think, and how many times you say this, boy, success changed them. You ever heard that expression? Do you know what I believe? I don't believe that happened at all. I don't believe that happened. Here's what I think. I think people are who they are. Basically, when, when he was broke, he didn't have the same luxury to be a jerk. He had to be humble. But now that he has some success, he has more freedom to be a jerk. He was a poor jerk, now he's a rich jerk. Always a jerk. Now, that's really deep right there. I just, I'm telling you, man, I'm throwing out some deep thoughts for you guys this morning. All I'm saying is, think success or failure doesn't make you who you are. It reveals who you are. You see the difference? It just shows you who you are. So if I'm proudful, if I'm proud, I know some proud, poor people. I know, some, you know it, it doesn't have anything to do with any of that. It's just the condition of the heart. And one of the things humility will do is it'll bring about a, a, a tenderness in how you treat people, not an arrogance. Here's another one. Uh, a person that's genuinely humble, according to Matthew 6, 1, can work without recognition. Now, everybody likes a paycheck and a pat on the back and good job. That's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible promises rewards. God promises rewards. He promises to pay you for your wages. That's not what's being taught here. He's saying that there's some things in life that you do not for any of that. You just do some things because it's right to do. Not for the applause, not for the pat on the back. And sometimes you, when you do things like that, you wonder, you know, wow, I mean, I, I, they didn't even thank me for that. I mean, I did this and I, I, they didn't even acknowledge. Let me, let me help you with your thinking. The Bible says you cannot give as much as a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord without him rewarding you. Jesus will say in a little while in this sermon, he said, I see the sparrow when it falls. So you know, that means when you do the littlest thing for the smallest person, most, the little, the, a child, God sees that and goes, that was good. I saw that. I'm going to bless you for that. 
Way to go. Good job. And one of the things that humility will do is it brings about that selfless idea of helping people without expecting anything in return. In fact, that principle is taught in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. It says that a true humble person will do for others and not use others. And so I just want to suggest to you as I close this morning that when we're genuinely, genuinely humble and we just say, God, help me. Help me to live my life with a sense of, 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 of your presence, uh, with, with a sense of humility. Help me to approach people when I see them on the street, when I engage them at work. Help my attitude to be, what can I do to help you? What can I do to make your day better? What can I do to make your load lighter? When we approach life with that attitude, the Bible says we've entered the king's domain. You're never more like Jesus than when you have that attitude. So God help us to do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word as we just stepped into this new series of trying to understand the teaching you gave there that day. And it's so striking that you started by talking about the power of humility, how it begins to enter us into the fullness of all you have to offer, your provision, your presence, your power, your peace, so many things. Help us to really check our hearts to see how we're doing with this idea of humility to be genuine in how we treat other people and genuine in how we evaluate ourselves. So Lord, I pray this would be a wonderful opportunity for us to assess and evaluate our, our walk with you. And for others who are in the room or those who are watching who may never have trusted you, I pray this might be that moment where they just humble their heart, maybe even swallow their pride and pray a simple prayer like this. And just say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin, and be a reality in my life. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.